the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. C.S. Lewis and his book, The Screwtape Letters, made Satan's perspective rather famous or infamous. But much of what he got for that book was found here in Revelation, as we'll see today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. In the Screwtape Letters, there was a type of Christian that Satan and his minions loved, and there was a type they hated. Question is, which are you? Welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're continuing our survey of Revelation, and today, here in chapter 12, we come to a passage of Scripture that gives us the kind of Christian that Satan hates. Let's see if you stack up. Let's join Pastor Gary now in today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. In this chapter, we have a couple of great pictures. The first one is a picture of this beautiful woman and of a little boy and of a ferocious dragon. And then the second part of the chapter deals with a war between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels. So let's first talk about this beautiful woman, this boy, and this dragon. Who is this lady? Well, I think it'll be obvious as we look at some scripture texts that this lady is the church of the Old Testament, that she is the covenant people of God. Notice what is said about her. A great sign or a great figure of speech appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. In the Old Testament the covenant people of God are referred to as the bride of Jehovah, the wife of Jehovah. For instance, in Hosea chapter two, verse 19, the Lord said, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. So here you have a picture of the wife of Jehovah, and she's clothed with heavenly glory. You see that heavenly glory also in the Old Testament of Isaiah 60, verse 1. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, addressing Israel here, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For, for behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So she is dressed with the sun the best clothing that heaven can give. And she has a certain authority. She's wearing a crown. 
but she also has the moon under her feet, and her crown has 12 stars. Now, where did all of that come from? Well, remember what Joseph told his brothers, inspired by the Holy Spirit in Genesis 37, 9. We see Joseph's dream of the sun and the moon and 11 stars that were his brothers bowing down to him. So here this imagery is used to describe this beautiful woman. The moon bows down to her in submission. She has authority. There was a crown of 12 stars on her head. Remember Joseph being the 12th star. Joseph talked about his 11 brothers while he himself was the 12th. So there are the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, which was the numerical signature of the covenant people of God, the church of the Old Testament. So the more you see where he got this imagery, the more you realize that this beautiful woman was none other than the covenant people from which the Savior of the world would be born. Also, she was in labor and about to give birth. And that is a description of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. It says in Isaiah 66, verse 7, Before she, that is Israel, travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. So here you have a beautiful lady who represents the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, the Old Testament church with authority, being the wife of Jehovah, and she is about to give birth. Now, who is this boy? That should be obvious. Notice what it says about him in verse 5. And she gave birth to a son a male child who was to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, this is Israel giving birth to a boy who, of course, is the Messiah. And this is a frequent prophecy in the Old Testament. This is obviously the Messiah himself, Jesus, and he is the fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, just an offside here. When you have a moment, you should turn to Isaiah 7, 14, because you need to correct your English version. It should actually read the virgin, virgin, not a virgin because there was only, only, has only been one virgin mother in the history of mankind, and that is, of course, Mother Mary, the mother of Jesus. Then Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government, or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So here, Old Testament Israel is pregnant with a little boy, and that little boy is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
He is the Messiah. Now, this passage actually applies a quote from Psalm 2 to him, so there's no mistake about who this is. Verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. And here is what it says in Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. This is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Father says in verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king, Jesus, upon Zion, my holy mountain. Then the Son of God speaks, I will surely tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Then the Father says, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So what do we know about this little boy? We know that salvation is of the Jews, and we know that he is born of Old Testament Israel, the church of God. We know that he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, and we know he is a great king to whom all the nations of the world have been given by God to him as his personal possession that he is to rule with justice and righteousness, and those who resist his rule, he will destroy them like clay pots. So that is the description of this boy, and he is none other than the Lord and King Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. Now this dragon wants to eat this boy, and so God protects him in verse 5. In verse 4, the dragon is waiting for the child to be born so he can devour him. But verse 5 says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God to his throne. Surely this is imagery. This imagery is referring to the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father, from which he would rule the nations. And instead of the dragon devouring him, Christ defeated the dragon. Now, who is the dragon? Well, first of all, he's quite scary. Once again, use your imagination here. He is a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. I'm not sure how these ten horns fit on those seven heads, but it says he had ten horns. Remember, horns were symbols of power in the Old Testament. And on his head were seven diadems or crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars out of heaven. So this is a very big dragon. And threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So... Let's identify this ferocious, horrifying-looking, gigantic dragon. In the book of Revelation, the dragon represents actually two things. He, as we later find out, is identified with Satan in verse 9. The serpent, the devil, or Satan. So Satan is there in the very first century waiting for the Messiah to be born so he could kill him and remove him from the scene. And of course... This was a terrible time. 
As soon as Jesus was born, Herod got word of it, and you have the famous slaughter of the innocent, of all the little babies that were killed because Herod wanted to get rid of this kingly Messiah. And then you had Satan himself confronting Jesus in the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. And then there were all the demonic confrontations with Jesus throughout his life. And then you see that he who had the power of death kills Jesus, and Jesus remained under the power of death for three days. So it was a terrible time of Satan trying to destroy the Son of God so that his kingdom would come to an end. But also in the Old Testament, the designation of the word devil applies to the instruments that Satan uses to oppose Christ and his people. For instance, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, it says to the church of Smyrna that the devil has cast many of you into prison. And of course, the reference is to Rome, that the Roman officials had thrown many of them into prison. So here the Roman Empire is identified with Satan because it is Satan's instrument in the persecution of God's people. So this dragon is Satan, and whatever instruments he uses to try and destroy Christ, this beautiful woman, and the rest of her seed. Now this dragon, he, has, he is multi-headed. He has seven heads. And remember, the number seven is the symbol of complete power. And he had ten horns, and ten is another word for complete or comprehensive and a horn is a symbol of power. He had crowns on his head. That is, he made certain claims of authority for himself. And he was so mighty that he was able to sweep away a third of the stars in heaven just by turning his tail. Now, what would the impact of that description on Christians in the first century about to face the persecution of Rome do? Would it terrify them? No, because they knew the Old Testament, and they knew that God kills dragons. Isaiah 27.1 says, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent with his fierce, great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So when the children of God read this description of the dragon who would persecute Christ and their mother and themselves throughout history, instead of trembling in their boots, they remembered that the God they served is a mighty dragon slayer, that he kills dragons, and no matter how terrifying this monster might be, He's of no threat to those who belong to God. Now notice also the dragon goes after the boy, verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. Here you see Satan trying to assault Christ directly and he fails in his assault. Because this little boy, the Messiah, is protected by the sovereignty of God. In Acts chapter 4, Verses 25 and 26, we see a quote from Psalm 2, 
which again is about Christ. And it says this, For truly in this city of Jerusalem, they were gathered against your holy servant or your holy child Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So it says, whatever happened to Jesus in Jerusalem, whatever Herod did to him, whatever Pontius Pilate did to him, whatever the Gentiles did to him, whatever the apostate people of Israel did to him, everything they did was simply what God predestined to occur. So even in those early days, though Satan sought to destroy Christ himself, he got nowhere because every event in Christ's life was protected by God's sovereign decrees. And when Satan couldn't do anything about the boy, he went after the woman. Verse 5. And he gave birth to a son. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years, half of seven. So the dragon goes after the child's mother, who is the church, and she flees into the wilderness. And beloved, this is not an escapist response. She goes into the wilderness, which is a place of provision. It is a place of nourishment where God takes care of her and watches over our mother, the church, and does not let Satan destroy her. The wilderness protects this beautiful woman for 1,260 days. Three and a half years, a limited exile of temporary duration. Relatively brief compared to the thousand-year reign of the church in Revelation 20, which we will see fairly soon. Now, we've already talked about this three and a half years in an earlier chapter where there were three and a half years of intense slaughter and destruction in Jerusalem by the judgment of God. And three and a half years is a symbol of a relatively short period of time. The only people that survived this destruction were the people of God who fled to the hills, who went into the wilderness where the church was nourished and protected throughout that terrible time of the fall of Jerusalem. So what is the conclusion that we draw from this story of this beautiful woman this little boy, and this dragon. It is this. The two central figures of revelation and of all conflict between the church and the world are the victorious Christ and the beaten Satan. Whenever you see any conflict between the world and the church, understand that behind it there are two invisible enemies. One is Christ, and the other is Antichrist. One is our Savior, our Messiah, the other is the Red Dragon. And for you philosophers, that is not a dualistic approach to history, because they are not of equal authority. 
It is not to say that evil and good are in an irreconcilable conflict and there will never be a resolution to it. No, there is a resolution. And that resolution is the defeat for all evil that began with the death of Christ and is consummated with the second coming of Christ. But understand, whenever you see any conflict between right and wrong, good and evil, the church and the world, that behind it is the conflict between the red dragon and this Messiah child. Learn to study history like that, beloved. When you read history, you read of the great wars and all the things that go with it in Western Europe and the like. Understand that behind those wars is Christ and Antichrist. They are the chief actors on the scene of history. They are unseen in person and visible only through the instruments that they use. Which instruments of the boy are the church and of the dragon it is an unregenerate world. But behind everything is the hand of the director of all drama. And that director is none other than Almighty God, Jehovah. The actors on the stage are always Christ and Antichrist. Always Read history like that. Now we come to a war between Michael and Satan. Verses 7 through 12. Now remember, these are all figures of speech. But let's go ahead and read Revelation verses 7 through 12. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and the angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So there you have a picture from another perspective of this war between Christ and Satan. But who is this Michael? Here is a war between Michael and Satan. Michael and his angels wage war against the dragon with all of his soldiers, but the dragon and his army are not strong enough to withstand Michael and his forces. So Michael throws them out of heaven in total defeat. He casts them down in verse 9. He throws Satan down to earth, beaten, rejected along with all of his angels. So who is Michael? Well, in my opinion, Michael is not an archangel. I believe this is, now, not, this is another figure of speech 
where Michael is none other than the victorious, triumphant Christ. And there are a couple of reasons of why I believe this, so listen carefully. You, you may have a better explanation for this, but this is what I think it means. The word Michael means, who is like unto God. In other words, who is like God, except the one who bears the name. God is incomparable, and there is no one like him. And yet this personage is the one person who has the name, who is like God. Implying, he is God. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408 866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. 